0: If you have a Bible with you, please open it to the end of Luke 23 today. In just a moment, we will start reading that passage of Scripture beginning in verse 50, Luke 23 50. This is a glorious day, and we have it, to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is not Just one day of celebration for us as Christians, we realize that every Sunday, we gather on Sunday to praise and to glorify Jesus Christ because he has been risen from the grave. Indeed, we ought to celebrate that fact every single day of our lives. But nevertheless, today is a special day that we set aside to witness and to meditate upon the great work of Jesus Christ and being risen from the grave. It is the centerpiece of God's work in Christ It is the vindication of Jesus' life and his work. It is the redemption of the saints. It is the defeat of sin and death and the arrival of all that is light and good. Today we remember more than any other day the glorious news that Christ is risen from the grave. If you were with us on Good Friday, we had our service there that day, and I, I remarked that both Friday and Sunday are uniquely tied to one another. And yet, even as they are tied together, there is something of an inversion in the questions that we ask. Friday's questions revolve around the meaning of the day. Why did Christ die? What was the purpose of that death? But here today, the question is not about what the meaning is so much, but oftentimes the question centers upon whether that event happened. And so, if you go to many different churches today, you would find focus on the proofs of the resurrection and I think that such things can be incredibly encouraging and helpful in the walks of believers and even help to overcome the doubts of both believers and unbelievers. Yet, I admit that for many, no amount of explanation will ever be enough. No eyewitness proof is good enough. No testimony of changed lives is powerful enough. No philosophical answers will ever be robust enough. Nothing will simply move the needle Added to that is the fact that most who have come here this morning already truly believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. So I think that the questions that we ask should be somewhat changed. The resurrection has happened. Jesus, who was dead in the tomb and descended into Hades, is now resurrected in power and in might. The tomb has been opened and it has been found empty. So what? What do we do with this knowledge? I mean, obviously we are to believe it and we're to trust in it. To trust the reports that God's word has given to us. Yet the resurrection does more for us than that. Simply going through every little piece of what the resurrection does for us is not something that we have time for this morning. Certain members of my congregation are breathing a sigh of relief. They were concerned that this might get long, longer than it probably already will be. Um, But we can't cover all of that ground. What we'll have is something along the lines of trajectories. The report of the resurrection ought to set us on a course of understanding, a course of of aid and, and help as we go through our lives. It is not that everything becomes fully clear and fully applicable to our lives in a split second, but that we're set on a path and we move towards a goal of sorts. So today we want to look at some of the meaning of the resurrection. Certainly there is more than what we will get to. But this is something of importance. It's something to start with. It's something to meditate on. It's something to worship Jesus Christ about to accomplish this. Let us go to Luke chapter 23 and begin reading in verse 50. There, the Gospel of Luke says this. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, Who had not consented to their decision and action, he was looking for the kingdom of God. Yet this man, excuse me, this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, What can we take from this reading of Scripture? What kind of trajectories do these set us on? First, the resurrection helps us to experience the new. It helps us to experience the new. Having said that the resurrection is indeed helping us to experience the new, the question is, frankly, whether this is something new or not. Certainly, it's some sort of continuation of the life of Jesus, even if it is a life after a death. But why should this have any sort of an idea of a new beginning? And even if it is for Jesus... Why would it have any sort of a new beginning for us? When Luke begins his gospel, he notes that there is a certain priest named Zechariah who serves the Lord, who offers sacrifices to the Lord, and who is pronounced as righteous. Later on in his account, angels appear to shepherds who are incredibly lowly people. They are on the bottom of the social order there. They are despised by most cultured. And to them... These angels announce the wondrous news of something that has already occurred. This day has been born for you a child in Bethlehem. It is odd that the angels would announce such great news to men of such low standing, not to Herod, not to the religious and political leaders in Jerusalem, but to these lowly shepherds, shepherds who then run and travel and tell Mary of precisely what they have seen and heard. The account that we have here of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection follows a similar pattern. Joseph of Arimathea, an important man, who is reported by Luke here as righteous, serves the Lord by sacrificing a tomb in which no body was ever laid. Women are the first to hear the report of angels, to see the empty tomb. Women who were of just as low standing, if not lower, than shepherds. Their their report, their eyewitness statements, wouldn't have been verifiable in court. But yet it is to them first that this is announced. And it's not announced as something that is coming, it is announced as something that has happened, and they themselves go and return and tell others of precisely what has happened. In each case, we have a righteous man of some importance serving the Lord, the sudden appearance of a group of angels to people of low social standing, an announcement of life, and the repeating of this announcement after a journey. In other words, the resurrection is something of a repetition of Jesus' birth. This is not to be thought of just as like a continuation of his life, but a sign of a new type of life. There's something new going on here. This isn't an old resurrection. It's not a resurrection like Jesus has performed in the past. Lazarus was due to die again. The other children that he had resurrected were due to die again. But Jesus, this is a whole new ballgame. Yet it does not just signal a new birth for him as though the world was simply turning over and he gets something new out of it, but it signifies a whole new world altogether. There are several ways to notice this. They come actually from the Old Testament, not just from the New. After all, Adam himself, as we have read in Genesis 2-7 and then had repeated for us in Genesis 3, was made from the dust, from the earth. It's interesting to me that the prophet Isaiah, who includes in directly after his incredible prophecy of the crucifixion, those words that we know so well that we read on Friday that that ring in our ears when we think of the crucifixion, that he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. After he writes Isaiah 52 and 53 that, that speak so fully of that crucifixion immediately when he is done with it. In Isaiah 54, he writes these words. Sing. Sing, O barren one. Who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. In Isaiah, after the crucifixion, there is new life, but not ordinary new life, new life that springs from that which is barren, from that which cannot go into labor, from that which has no chance of conception. Add into this, the chapter before our crucifixion narratives, and not in Isaiah 52 and 53, but in Isaiah 51. Isaiah tells us to look for people, to keep somebody in mind. That person is Sarah, whose womb was pictured as nothing but a rock. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you. Sarah, who gives birth to Isaac in her old age, had a womb that was nothing more than a rock. It was a place where life does not come from. And yet here, in Isaiah 54, and here, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, rocks give birth. A new man, who is better and more glorious than the old man of dust, Adam, comes out. The resurrection is not just a picture of the continuation of life, but of God starting all things new. A new creation has dawned and a new world has completely opened. But at the same time, we're not oblivious to the things that go on around us. We know that the world hasn't changed in 2,000 years. We have a great deal of technology. We've got a great deal of medicine that we we can practice now. But the same old ills, the same old problems still affect our world. Hatred is still in vogue. Wars still rampage. Greed still drives men. And evil thrives in our world. The good still suffer. Innocence is still oppressed. And lies often beat out the truth. Sure, we agree, not all is new. But again, the resurrection isn't meant to make everything new in a second. It gives us a trajectory. Not to give us the fullness and completion of all things. The resurrection hasn't The resurrection hasn't changed completely the course of the world, but it can make those in Jesus new. It changes how we relate to the world, how we think of the world, even how we hope through the fog and the difficulties of the world. Suffering will still happen. Pain will be constant. Grief might come alongside of you for a time. But in the resurrection, we have a hope that sees through those things and a victory that assures us of our perseverance in them. Here we see that God is reversing the course of the world. While the first creation started with the cosmos and ended with man and Adam, God starts the new with a better Adam and with the end of a renewal of the world. All things will be new. Secondly, the resurrection helps to explain the old. The resurrection helps to explain the old. Typically, when we read through the Gospels, we're taken aback at the fact that people don't understand that when Jesus says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be turned over to the chief priests and scribes, and I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to raise up on the third day, and when it happens, they're like, holy cow, I wish we had knew. And we're a little bit taken aback by that, like, how could they not know? He told them three times. I hate telling my kids things three times. And this seems like a fairly important thing. How could they possibly have missed it? But we need to understand circumstances need to be taken into account. The entire situation is really easy for us who don't experience and live it out in real time. The prediction of death and resurrection are surely outweighed by the grief of the actual thing. Our incredulity is at least a little bit off. It's it's like seeing a grieving husband and children at a funeral crying, why? Why? why and lamenting that their loved one has passed too soon and and seeing their tears. And our response at that time, while they're weeping and crying, why shouldn't be, well, I mean, the doctor told you, right? I mean, it was probably the cancer that did it. Are you honestly asking why? I think you know why. Certainly grief plays a role in their complete absence of mind when it comes to these things. But there are other reasons as well. Luke tells us that Jesus teaches quite often in parables, and he demonstrates quite regularly that this is the pattern that Jesus built up in his ministry. In the famous and important parable of the sower, Jesus tells them not only what the parable means, but his whole reason for giving his teaching in parables. In Luke 8, he says to you, to the disciples who were there, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing They may not understand. In other words, he purposely wants people to not understand some of the things that he says. Thus begins a long list of parables that Jesus provides in Luke, likely using them much more often than is simply recorded for us. He speaks of his death and resurrection in Luke 9, which is followed by a call for his disciples, all of his disciples, not just the apostles who were there, but anyone who would follow them, to a metaphorical yet real death and laying down their lives for him. Then come many parables. The good Samaritan, the rich fool, the master who returns after the wedding feast, barren fig tree, the mustard seed and leaven, the wedding feast, the great banquet, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son, the dishonest manager, the rich man and Lazarus, the persistent widow, the ten minas, the wicked tenants. Time after time after time, Jesus teaches in parables. Parables that quite obviously mean more than what they say. And in the middle of that, he says, I will be betrayed And I will die and I will rise again. The disciples are trained to mean, to think that when Jesus speaks, he means more than he says. And those words wouldn't have made any sense to them literally, so they they must mean something figurative. This is how the clarification that the angels get strikes the woman so fully. All they do is remind them. Don't you remember Jesus said this and they're like, oh, that's what he meant. If only we had known this whole series of events can be, if we allow it to be, sort of a parable for us, a meta parable, if you will. The passage that directly concludes this in Luke 24, Jesus finds a couple of guys walking on the road to Emmaus, and he catches them, and they're talking to him about the events that happened in Jerusalem. And eventually, Jesus will stop them and say to them, O oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. All the various streams of the Old Testament, which seemed to travel their own sort of distinct path and have their own separate lives, all of them meet in Christ. Those who lived in Europe during medieval times had a saying that all roads led to Rome. No matter how divergent the direction they traveled No matter how separate the kingdoms and the cities were, Rome was the epicenter. If you traveled on those roads long enough, they would lead you to Rome. All biblical roads lead to the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Law, promise, blessing, curse, sacrifice, kings, war, slavery, marriage, rest, creation, justice, compassion. All of these streams of the Old Testament meet at the cross and kiss in the resurrection but it's, it's not just the biblical line of thought. All of the questions that we have lead there. Questions about God's kindness and his goodness, his justice and his mercy, our own suffering and loneliness. These questions are older than scripture. They, they predate your asking them. And yet all these questions lead us to the cross. Just to take one example, that of our sure and if not already present in your life then soon to be idea of suffering Why does God allow, who is powerful and benevolent in all that he does, why does he allow suffering? The resurrection gives us a trajectory, if not the full answer. One day God will indeed make it right. The present suffering is, after all, according to Paul, not worthy of the glory that's about to be demonstrated by God. Jesus himself clearly trusted that, clinging on to the one who judges justly. And that trust is rewarded in the resurrection. After all, as Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 15, the seed must die before the greater plant springs up. Death and suffering are ours. But the resurrection promises that a better life is about to blossom. Old questions get their answer in an empty tomb. The resurrection helps us to explain the old. But lastly, the resurrection also helps to excite our wonder. The resurrection helps to excite our wonder. The women hustle, run back to inform the men of what they've seen. The men are less quick to catch on than the women. Even, I'm sure, after the women said, don't you remember, he said that he would do this. They apparently blow him off. Except one man, Peter, whose own denial of Jesus gives him reason to hope for that which the others seem to blow off as a matter of reason. Peter gets to the tomb. He sees the truth. He takes in all that he can, and he leaves believing. But don't take believing for understanding or or complete and utter comprehension. I mean, he gets some of it, no doubt. But plumb the depths of what he has seen, he certainly hasn't. He leaves marveling. It's a wonderful word, that, marveling. A word that implies that he believes, that he trusts, but... Even though his eyes have seen it and his ears have heard it, he still doesn't quite comprehend what he has seen and what he has heard. We often think that once we start to understand a topic, once we we get a hold of it at all, we will naturally feel more at home in it, more in control of it. And part of that's true, of course. But sometimes the more we learn about something, the more we realize how little we actually know. Our ignorance is nothing but prideful bliss. The resurrection does give Peter some insight, certainly, but it does more than that. It clarifies for Peter how wonderful and unfathomable our God truly is. And the resurrection is incredibly strange that way. It gives clarity. Yes, it ought to. It ought to answer questions. But if you truly begin to understand the cross, you begin to see that you never will fully comprehend it. How can a man plumb the depths of the heart of God? Paul might affirm that the Spirit can reveal the truth of this amazing event and the marvel at the nature of God. He can reveal some of that to us, but that doesn't mean that we will ever understand it fully. We can confidently affirm the truth of John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave his Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. We can affirm with the saints in the past the glorious truth that that God loved the world by sending his son to die, giving them salvation and eternal life, and sparing them the perishing that was rightfully theirs. And We can stop there and say, see, it's pretty easy to comprehend and to understand. But far beyond simply telling us how God loves the world, those verses also explain to us at least something of how much God loves the world. But who can understand such things? Who has loved anything, even your most dear thing, anything, with the same intensity that the Father loves his Son? Who can understand the compassion and the justice of a God who would do such things? How does one start to make true and abiding sense of that? To understand the emotional and moral depths of a God who acts this way? To say that you understand it and to say that you comprehend it is quite frankly simply to confess that you don't. How great a love does God have for us that a king would come to serve his people rather than be served by them, that the offended would take the pay and the penalty for the crimes of those who are the offenders, that God, the one whom is true and abiding life, the only one in whom life is because God simply is, would somehow take on mortal flesh and in the mystery of mysteries, suffer and die. How does a man stay silent before his captors knowing that he is innocent? How does he stay silent knowing that he has more than enough power to free himself from anything at any time? How does he take all their wrath and anger knowing that he is the one who truly ought to be angry and wrathful at them? How does a man entrust himself so fully to the will of God, allowing himself to die so that God can show his great power by raising him again from the dead? The resurrection doesn't clarify everything for Peter. I'm sure that it helps him make sense of some things. I I have no doubt that the return from the tomb was filled with answers and epiphanies that were flooding and flying into Peter's head. But I I would seriously think that it, it didn't happen in such a way other than to spark more questions. Staring at the empty tomb, his mind was no doubt filled with the fact that there is no death here. There is no decay here. There is no body here. Perhaps Jesus' warnings of his own death and resurrection were ringing in his ears like the women's. Luke doesn't tell us and perhaps that's for the best. Peter leaves marveling and if he has reason to marvel, we have all the more. Peter had little time to think of the implications of the resurrection. Likely he had little time to think beyond the fact that Jesus simply wasn't dead anymore. We have more reasons to wonder and more questions that the resurrection doesn't quite answer, but to the contrary, brings with it a mystery that ought to leave us marveling and wondering. The resurrection means that most of our ideas about God, about scriptures, and even about the world were wrong. It confounds us. It demonstrates that God is more awesome than anyone could have expected. How can a death And a resurrection be the answer to all the problems of the world. How can this simple act lived out 2,000 years ago be everything that you need to face the dangers and the temptations of the world? How can this be comfort for you today? How does this provide our needed solution to the evil of men we see around us, to nature's fury and the overriding powers of sickness and death? How does this help you face normal things like mounting debt, physical toil and pain, difficult or wrecked marriages, wild children, demanding bosses, bad luck, disappointment? Of course, we can start to answer these things. We've said so, but we still await further answers. What kind of God in his infinite wisdom plans the entirety of the world around this event? A kind of world which God knew of before he even made it, he knew that it would be marked by disaster and evil and destruction and unmitigated pain and anguish and oppression and confusion and even sin against him, all the while knowing with a certainty that you and I will never be able to muster that the only solution for it was him coming to die. What kind of God weaves the sort of tapestry that we've talked about in the Old Testament, which is filled with vengeance and fury, mercy, sacrifice, promise, filled with love and bravery, submission and sin, only to tie all of those together through a death of somebody who the world would look at as simply a common criminal. More than that, what kind of God leaves such mystery and wonder in the hands of the very people who warred so harshly against him? Why would he use men, not angels, not voices from the heaven, not fiery displays on top of a mountain to announce this good news? Who uses simple words proclaimed by the lowest and the least noble among us to announce the victory of a crucified and denied king over the very power of death? The answer to these questions is both simple and profound. It's easy, yet it's deep. It's like a still lake, beautiful and serene, that you can't see the bottom of. It's a mystery down there. It's easy enough for a child to understand, yet rich enough to satisfy the curiosity of the most intelligent human beings for all of eternity. The entirety of it boils down to this, helpfully summarized by the Apostle Paul. Righteousness, our good standing before God, our acceptance before God, will be counted to us. Who believe in him who was raised, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The answer of God to the world, to its cries and its agonies, to all of its questions, its complaints, is here in the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is not an abstract answer. It is the answer for you, for your questions, for your pain, for your sin, even for your desires. It is the answer to who you are and all of your complication and all of your loneliness, and all of your separation, and all of your desire to belong. It is not always an answer that presents itself through logic and reason, although it's certainly not antithetical to those things, but oftentimes simply through wonder, amazement, faith, and worship. We have answers. We have truth. We gladly proclaim that truth. We will gladly tell anyone who will listen what those answers are, but the truth ought to lead us to wonder. Anyone who can get up before you and recite the great doctrines of the church and do so without wonder, and without marveling at them, knows nothing of which they speak. So, let us marvel at the fact that Jesus Christ, the eternally begotten of the Father, light of light, very God of very God, Begotten, not made, who is of one substance with the Father for us and for our salvation, came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, was made man, and was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the quick and the dead and his kingdom shall have no end. Let us marvel that this Jesus was raised today. Let us marvel and let us worship our God, for Jesus is alive. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Holy God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, We pray to you through the Spirit today that we might leave the resurrection today as Peter did, full of wonder at such a powerful, mighty, beautiful, just God. May we leave with certainty in the power of your promises, made true through the blood of Jesus Christ our Lord, to be made sure for your people. May we leave with good news written on our hearts, believed in our souls, ready on our lips. May you be praised for your plan and work made known to us through your holy apostles. May you seal us for your kingdom as we forsake this world by faith, and we do so for our good and for your glory. Amen.